It is Tuesday, February 6th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kell. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a hair salon in Fayetteville is finding a way to take hair clippings and help improve the planet. You know, us as humans, we do a number to this earth, and we only have one earth, so I was like, this would be a good way to kind of give back and help, you know, save the environment. Plus, the geopolitics of Star Trek. Science fiction does not predict the future. It critiques the present. And there are times when Star Trek is very good at that, and times when it's not so good at that. And the blues legend Lead Belly and his influence 75 years after his death. I started it off by giving the origins of the first time we heard the word woke. Right. Which on recorded song that he did on Scottsboro Boys. First, though, this hour's news from NPR. Support for KUAF comes from Little Wing, presenting Mike Campbell and the Dirty Knobs. After decades of performing at Tom Petty, they're coming to the Auditorium in Eureka Springs Saturday, April 26th. Reserve tickets go on sale Friday at tickets.thundertix.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media, at the University of Arkansas. Later on our show, we boldly go where no man has gone before. Conversation about the geography of Star Trek with Fiona Davidson, an associate professor of geosciences at the University of Arkansas. That's in about 15 minutes. First, though, sometimes solutions for major environmental problems are simple and come from unlikely places, like the floor of a barbershop. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis visited a salon in Fayetteville that is donating hair clippings to serve a greater purpose. Aaron Elam runs a unique hair salon. For one, he operates it out of a converted Airstream trailer, hence its apt name, Hairstream. It's located right off the Greenway in South Fayetteville. Elam says the uncommon nature of his salon draws many walk-up customers. We've been open over two years now down at this location, and when I found the spot, you know, I was like, this is perfect. The Greenway bike trail's right next to us, MLK is right in front of us, you know, so so it's been perfect down here. I've just been, been doing what I love, and this isn't work to me, because, like I said, I, I like to talk, and then my clients are my, my artwork. They're like my art pieces, so... So, you know, it's, that's where I wanted to get with my, my career and, and uh, have an awesome place to do what I love in and make people pretty. And, and it's all, that's one thing that I love and why I wanted to do hair is just kind of, you know, sometimes you get someone that comes in, maybe they don't feel that great about themselves. They're like, my hair's been bugging me. I just feel, you know, frumpy, whatever the case may be. And it's fun to just transform that and get get rid of that and bring in a new, you know, excitement about, they're like, oh, I love my hair. Another special aspect of Hairstream is what happens to clients' hair clippings after they're snipped. After every haircut, Elam sweeps the floor, collects the hair, and bags it up. He says that ultimately, he'll donate the hair, and down the line, it'll be used to help clean oil from waterways. Elam says this idea came about the way many great ideas seem to occur nowadays, through mindless internet scrolling. So one night I came home from work and I was just on the internet and, and I was Googling some stuff and nothing, nothing 
hair work related and all of a sudden below Google you know there's sometimes little stories that pop up and and I saw was there was this organization called Matters of Trust Matter of Trust you know out in California in San Francisco Matter of Trust is a nonprofit that collects discarded fibers like hair dog fur fleece and wool to weave oil absorbing mats that are then used to clean storm drains rivers lakes and oceans Elam says Working with Matter of Trust seemed like a great way for Hairstream to give back to the planet it occupies. I saw that and I was like, oh my gosh, that's really cool. I, and you know what? I have access to a lot of hair that I could send in and contribute. And, you know, us as humans, we do a number to this earth and we only have one earth. So I was like, this would be a good way to kind of give back and help you know save the environment i love to hike and go out in nature a whole lot i have a big german shepherd so him and i go out a lot and and we like to be outdoors and we like to be around lakes and rivers and and the ocean i brought him out to you know we've been to to the ocean several times out in california lisa gautier founded matter of trust in 1998. she says that her mission has been to link surplus with need since the beginning it all started when gautier moved to san francisco in the late 90s and took up her mom's old apartment, which was already furnished. The trouble was, Gautier already had plenty of goods to move into the new space. We had double the stuff and I found this school that could use like a little sofa and, and rug for story time area. And it was just such an amazing school, John Muir School here in San Francisco. There was a one principal paid position, but two women were working full-time sharing the salary because 50% of the population was in homeless shelters. And it was just this amazing, amazing school. They were just making it such an amazing place. So I, I asked them if they needed anything else, and we got our first wish list. As Gautier acquired items for the school, she always received more items than she asked for, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing. The surplus she encountered allowed her to realize a startling disconnect between what some people have and what others need. She continued her work, reaching out to other charities and attempting to fill their needs. She says she began working with environmental groups by following her passion for ecology and activism. We, we talk about the environmental movement being very uh, a lot about scarcity, but um, because we work a lot with youth, I don't want to I want to, I really want to concentrate on the optimism and and positive things and I find that when you talk about how nature is very abundant and there's when you're linking surplus with needs there's a lot of surplus in nature uh and so we we started to look at natural things as well and that led us to the the waste fibers uh hair for fleece etc and that's really become one of our our flagship programs like it's it's um it's kind of a unique niche, and, um, and people just love talking about it. Everybody's growing their own hair, so everybody can see that going to waste. In 1999, Gautier met Alabama hairdresser Phil McCrory. He had developed a mat woven of human hair to be used for cleaning oil after watching a spills cleanup on television. He witnessed a sea otter completely covered in the substance and concluded that if animal fur traps oil, so would human hair. Gautier says that her surplus-based donations and McCrory's revolutionary invention meshed perfectly. Soon after their meeting, she was collecting hair from salons across the country, weaving them into mats and employing them for a wide range of uses. Fast forward one decade. 
in 2010, um, we were involved in the BP oil spill. Um, and uh, so we worked a lot with private um, beaches and, and places like that. A lot of amazing, amazing um, people there. I went to the South um, several times and got to work with, you know, uh, people collecting hair uh, and fibers from from uh, zoos and, and pet groomers and everything. And sometimes you'd have it to 6,000 volunteers a day. It was just, the South is just amazing. So, so kind and so generous. Anyway, so a lot of that got used after the oil spill, uh, because during the oil spill it was very litigious and there was a lot going on with BP and, but the amazing part of that was that I got to meet this team of people. So we met this wonderful people through the Coast Guard who introduced us to the Navy, who introduced us to the Army Corps of Engineers, and a program there got absorbed by the Air Force. And we've been working with them ever since many years on a large contaminated reservoir filtration system. And that's one of our biggest projects is, is looking at all of the contaminants that that works with and um, petrochemicals. So that's a big project for us. Gautier says that Matter of Trust mostly uses their mats to filter oils from water collected by storm drains. In fact, 50% of contaminants that enter waterways originate from streets. Rain, fog, and snow all mix with oils from cars and asphalt and flow into our streams, rivers, and eventually oceans. That's the big one. It's not as sexy, um, but it is, you know, it's really where we want to concentrate and just work with cities everywhere to just put these mats um, into storm drains. Gautier says that Matter of Trust's goal is to establish 300 felting centers across the globe by 2030 so local fibers can assist local solutions. Today, they're at 111. They wouldn't be there if it weren't for salon owners like Hairstreams, Aaron Elam. Elam says his clients are usually very excited to learn their hair will be used for a greater purpose. Clients are super stoked about it. They're like, oh my gosh, that's cool. I never thought about that. And, and the, you know, they kind of have the same reaction I had when, when I tell them about them. I'm like, tell them about it. You know, they're like, okay, yeah, we don't need that old hair anyways. And I actually call the, I call it the old news ends, you know, hair. That's the old hair that I cut off. I'm like, oh yeah, you, you need to get rid of your old news ends. You can visit our website for more information about Matter of Trust, hair streams, and how you can get involved, even by just booking a haircut. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jack Travis. Jack Travis produces his stories in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One. Later, on Ozarks at Large, how the Star Trek media franchise has addressed geopolitics and been a reflection of current politics for decades. My perspective as somebody who does geopolitics is what they're saying there is that we need that individualism, which reflects the 1980s neoliberalism of the U.S. and the Western world. Neoliberalism says the individual has to be paramount. And therefore, the Borg as a collective entity is the most frightening thing we can imagine. We'll preview an upcoming University of Arkansas signature seminar about Star Trek, politics, and media later this hour. This Wednesday on Ozarks at Large, the transgender experience with June Simmons. Being able to talk to a therapist and being able to be open with your parents and your family about who you are 
really helps with mental health. There are so many trans kids, especially, who aren't able to tell anyone about how they feel. And that's a it's a massive weight. And not having to deal with that is indescribably helpful and beneficial. The Transgender Experience in Arkansas, or T, is a series of conversations with seven transgender youth, men, and women who reside in Northwest Arkansas. T is a production of KUAF Public Radio, recorded in the Listening Lab. To listen to the extended conversation with June, you can visit listeninglabkuaf.com forward slash T. A group looking to curtail legislative interference with citizen-led constitutional amendments and initiated acts submitted a proposed amendment to the Arkansas Constitution yesterday for Attorney General Tim Griffin's review. Attorney David Couch says the amendment to amend the initiative and referendum process is a collaboration with the League of Women Voters to restrict the General Assembly from amending citizen-passed initiatives, clarify the legislature's emergency clause voting process, prohibit monopolies through the initiative process, and provide rules for the Attorney General's role in reviewing ballot titles. The Fayetteville Public School System recently announced an extension of the school day by 35 minutes. The adjusted schedule began yesterday, but Superintendent John Mulford says the process to change the schedule started a couple of weeks ago. We received communication from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education uh, notifying schools that given the amount of inclement weather uh, that they did have an option, uh, an alternate option for making up the days missed other than just adding days to the end of the year. And that was to uh, switch from the traditional days-based calendar that most districts have followed to the most recently approved alternate calendar. Um, And DESE is allowing districts to make that switch mid-year. So the benefit of that is instead of adding days after after Memorial Day and into June, uh, districts could choose to extend their school day and uh, get that time in before Memorial Day. With that information, we met with our uh, personnel policy committee, which is the, the committee that typically develops calendar options and presents them to the board to see if they wanted to look at doing this. This mid-year change only affects students grades 5 through 12. Mulford says that this is the preference of school teachers who will be receiving additional time for class instruction. And the feedback was largely in favor of extending the day. And the reason for that was um, teachers wanting to get as much instructional time in as they can prior to uh, state and national testing windows. And so uh, when they kind of compared seven days after Memorial Day versus, you know, additional 35 minutes a day every day through the end of the school year, um, it just seemed like we would get more instructional value out of adding that time in now. Mulford says the school district understands there may be some unique situations for students. Whether that's a high school student who has to get to a job or some other kind of after-school commitment that families cannot alter. And so 
in that scenario, we're just encouraging those families to reach out to their building principal, and their building principal will work with them uh, to help find a solution that, that works. And so we're going to be as flexible as we can be with families. We just need them to communicate with their principal about the need. Several other school districts, including Farmington and Fort Smith, are also extending their days. Huntsville has decided to adjust three professional development days to regular school days to accommodate. Onyx Coffee Lab in Rogers is a finalist for a chocolate creation in the annual Good Food Awards. The Onyx concoction of chime milk chocolate plus pink peppercorn and Madagascar dark chocolate is one of 25 finalists from around the country. The awards are distributed annually by the Good Food Foundation. The winners will be publicly announced in April. The Star Trek media franchise includes more than a dozen television shows, more than a dozen films, games, books, theme park attractions, and conventions. A University of Arkansas Honors College seminar next fall will explore the worlds of Star Trek and how those works have reflected the geopolitics of their time and their creators. Fiona Davidson, an associate professor of geosciences, will lead the seminar. She's also going to deliver a public preview lecture Thursday evening. She says Star Trek's continued popularity owes a great deal to a vision of the future established by creator Gene Roddenberry. That came about at a time when things were incredibly stressful for Americans. Incredibly stressful for the whole world. But I think Americans were really feeling it. It was Vietnam. It was, there, there had been the whole um, optimism of the space race, which then got co-opted by the Cold War. And I think Gene Roddenberry had a vision of the future that we're going to get past all this and we're going to have this future where we're out there exploring the galaxy and we're all going to be nice to each other. And I think people caught on to that. And then it developed very quickly. It developed a very, very strong fan base, uh, mostly driven by women, interestingly. People don't tend to see that, but much of what kept Star Trek in the public eye in terms of conventions and pushing for a new series was was a powerful work that women did behind the scenes. Um, and so they spent most of the 70s trying to recreate it. Then Star Wars came along and suddenly space was trendy again and sexy again and you could get money for it. So they came up with the first movie, which was frankly a disaster, but, <laughs> but they, had, they had enough money to go on and make the next set of movies, which were much more successful. Uh, and then that that got the interest back. So, okay, now we can bring in this next series that Roddenberry wants to do, which is The Next Generation. And once The Next Generation hit and, and it was clear that it was going to be a commercial success, 
then it was like, okay, what can we make next? And so we get Deep Space Nine and then we get Voyager and Enterprise. And then, there's a, again, there's a gap, partly because Paramount and CBS are fighting over who owns the rights. And then it comes back with uh, the J.J. Abrams movies, which brings in a new set of fans, um, sort of younger and hipper. and But it also brings a new aesthetic to Star Trek, a modern aesthetic to Star Trek. And then that's what's able to get the, the, um, the momentum going for the next round, what we call um, new wave Star Trek or, or new age Star Trek or the third age of Star Trek, um, which starts in 2017 with Discovery. There is a utopian nugget, mm-hmm. right? There is. I mean, boldly go where no one's gone before. Um, and, and, and even at the beginning, the, the, the crew is not, does not all look the same. No. no. And later... It know, becomes we, much more. We've got different, not just mm-hmm. Lieutenant Uhura, who happens to be black, but you've got Spock, who's Vulcan, and, and, and that got, continues. Right, and you've got Chekhov, you've got Chekhov right. who's Russian, during the Cold War. And Star Trek is very, very good at this. It's very, very good at being progressive in terms of representation. Um, so we, 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 we see the first, um, obviously disabled character with Geordi in The Next Generation who has a visual impairment that is, okay, it's solved by technology, but he's still different. We have Data who's not human. So they're very, very good at representation. They've become even better at it in the new Star Trek, where we finally start to see representation for LGBTQA people, where we finally start to see um, not just uh, people of color, but people of color in significant numbers. So I think in Discovery, virtually the entire medical establishment is are are um are are headed by a black woman and it's it's an virtually an entire department of the ship um that is represented by people of color the best science fiction reflects what's happening right you mentioned that the original series starts vietnam cold mm-hmm. war but are there reflections in star trek that address contemporary issues oh, yes <laughs> Uh, I mean, what I do my research on is the geopolitics of Star Trek. And so geopolitics is embedded in Star Trek. Um, On the more surface level, what we see in the storytelling is, of course, there's a constant, uh, there's a constant intention, whether it's always carried off well is is another matter, but there's a constant intention to address things that are going on in the contemporary world. So in Next Generation, you see things like drug addiction being addressed. You see, you start to see see things like gender identity being addressed, but not particularly deeply or well, Um, in part because Roddenberry was still in control. And Roddenberry had some very odd ideas about human nature in the future, um, including things like there would be no grief. Because people would be, even children would understand that it's, death is just a part of life and we would have evolved past the point of having grief. Uh, um, and I think that, that caused some serious issues with the writers at various times. But once Roddenberry was gone, so once we get Deep Space Nine, we start to, Deep Space Nine is, uh, Deep Space Nine to me and to a lot of people is the Shakespeare of Star Trek. Hmm. It is by far and away the most deeply thought out series that Star Trek ever produces under Iris Stephen Bear. What it addresses is things like uh, dealing with conflict. Roddenberry never wanted to deal with interpersonal conflict because, again, he thought that we would be past that. But, in fact, human nature is such that we're never going to be past interpersonal conflict. And so he deals with that in Deep Space Nine. He deals with things like the covert things you have to do to win a war. Um, There's a fabulous episode um, called In the Pale Moonlight where um, Captain Sisko has to do something terrible. And he has to live with that for the rest of his career. 
Um, but he has to do it to, to, to basically give the Federation a chance in the war. And, and that's actually addressed in a realistic way for the first time. Star Trek's really good at what I call the deontological problem of making their heroes both moral and victorious because they have writers that allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. So you can have Jim Kirk with his 1% chance that this is going to work and it's going to work because the writers are going to make sure it's going to work. So he can go out and save that one person and risk the 500 because those 500 are never at risk because the writers are not going to let him fail. With Deep Space Nine, we actually start to see what happens if you fail. What happens? And so I think that, that, that there, and there are, there are other issues that Star Trek brings up in a way that, so we, yeah, we, I mean, we see contemporary issues such as immigration being brought up. Um, that's dealt with very, very directly in season two of Picard. In the new new Star Trek, and that's the one that's streaming on Paramount. It's on on Paramount, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it, it's really interesting because because we, yes, um, science fiction reflects our reality. Um, I think it was Margaret Atwood. I think Brian Aldiss has also said this that what science fiction actually doesn't science fiction does not predict predict, predict the future. It critiques the present, and there are times when Star Trek is very good at that, and times when it's not so good at that. Um, and one of the ways in which it's good at it is that it shows us our contemporary selves and says, um, you know, this is how we could be better. This is what we could do that would not get us into this situation. The problem is because it's nearly always framed in a way – Star Trek, is, again, is bad at this. It tends to frame the United Federation of Planets adversaries in a way that we recognize them as our adversaries – the Borg. The Borg. It? The Borg. The Borg is fascinating because the the next generation began in season one with an adversary that ended up being so comical that they couldn't continue with it. The Ferengi. Mm-hmm. They eventually ended up rehabilitating the Ferengi in Deep Space Nine, but in the next generation they're just comical, and they're also some really ugly racist tropes that get brought into the the Ferengi. So then they're like, okay, we need to jettison that and actually come up with a really dangerous adversary. And it's fascinating that they come up essentially with collectivism as their adversary. The Borg are a collective identity. And so what what my perspective as somebody who does geopolitics is, what they're saying there is that we need that individualism, which reflects the 1980s neoliberalism of the US and the Western world. Neoliberalism says the individual has to be paramount. Mm. And therefore, the Borg as a collective entity is the most frightening thing we can imagine. Interesting. And so the Borg become this. And the problem with that is if you frame your adversary as something that we recognize as our adversary, then it's very easy for us to sit back and say, well, these are the bad guys. Therefore, we're the good guys. That's where Star Trek is really not progressive. It tends to be very conservative geopolitically. And this is something that you'll be talking about in this, in, this seminar. Is ex- this is exactly what this seminar is yeah. about. It, this seminar is well, – it's funny because when you say something like the geography of Star Trek, people are like, ooh, we're going to talk about the, the planet Vulcan. And, and I'm like, no, 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 we're not. We might touch on that. But what we're going to talk about is the way in which Star Trek treats space as the 3D dimension, not as – you know, the mm-hmm. galaxy, the way Star Trek treats space. And it treats space very much in the same way that the Anglo-American Empire does or did and still does. That is, space is there to be claimed. Space is there to manifest be... Manifest ex- destiny. Manifest destiny. It's there to be explored. And you see that in the text of Star Trek all the time from 
space the final frontier. So we're, we've immediately introduced the idea of the frontier. And, and it, Picard season three, which is the most recent Star Trek that came out, actually began, its whole thing is structured around this celebration of Frontier Day. And the moment I heard it, I was like, really? We're still going back to the idea of the frontier? Have we not, since the 1960s, have we not started to understand that maybe the frontier is not the best model? That maybe we're, we, it, that gets us into these whole questions of othering and appropriation of land that you're not supposed to be appropriating. And I just found the other day a map from the 1970s of the Star Trek space. And it literally has Klingon space, Romulan space, United Federation of Planets space. And around them, there's a ring and it says exploration zones. So it's been divided up into these three exploration zones. It's the Treaty of Tordesillas. So <laughs> basically, who, who or whatever is in this exploration zone is going to belong to one of these uh-huh. three. Yeah. It's going to be ours. And Star Trek is really bad about not conceptualizing space in ways that take us out of that Anglo-American empire. And will you be talking with the students about how that can reflect back, that can reinforce ideas that we have? Yes, absolutely. It's not just entertainment. No, it's not. I mean, because what it does is it reinforces our conception of this as being the way in which the world works. Um, and Roddenberry is very open about this. Roddenberry is very much a Woodrow Wilson universal liberalist. That's his conception of the world is that the world should be not, not, not necessarily um, – the world should not necessarily be, be conquered by the U.S. For, the, for its own good. But it should be we – should, we should allow the U.S. hegemony to expand for the good of planet – for the good of the countries that are less developed than us, that are less civilized than us, that the ultimate human good comes from having the expansion of the American empire. And that's exactly what the British were doing in the 19th century and the early 20th century. Yeah, it sounds like it's colonialism. Exa- it's, it's exactly that. And, but it's colonialism with the overlying paternalistic idea that it's for your own good. So if, if representation on screen mm-hmm. looks good, right? I mean, you yeah. have Chekhov in the original. Right, right. Is um, representation behind the scenes good? It's better. It's much better. They have they have um, a very diverse cast of writers and and especially directors now. Um, they've become much better at. They they have a lot more. They've always had some. Uh, no, th- female directors did not really come about until uh, until the new series. Um, they did have female showrunners for um, for Voyager and. They did have female writers throughout. Actually, one of the best writers for Star Trek is DC Fontana, mm-hmm. who Dorothy Fontana wrote for the original series, and she's fantastic. She wrote one of my one of the best geopolitical. And in fact, if we talk about them being aware of geopolitical issues, there's an episode in the first. Um, I think it's in season two of the first of t- the original series called the Enterprise Incident that was based on the Pueblo Incident. Yeah, and it's and the way she originally wrote the episode, after stealing the technology from the Romulans, spying on the Romulans, Kirk was going to come back and tell the Federation, tell Starfleet Command that he was not handing over the technology because this was not the way we went about things, that this was wrong, and apparently the executives got involved and said we cannot imply that what the U.S. is doing is wrong. Wow. So what it was done, so the the text was changed so that it basically implied that spying is wrong unless we're doing it because we're the good guys. What are you going to do in the preview lecture? 
In the preview lecture, I'm going to talk a little bit about the background as to where the where the conceptual ideas from Star Trek come from, things like the Enlightenment and the early 20, colonialism, the early 20th century, Woodrow Wilson and his ideas, how that feeds into Roddenberry and his his creation, and then and then um, a little bit about why it's important. Why is it important that we look at this media, which is just entertainment, and and talk about the way in which it reinforces us or the way in which it changes us? Because it can do both. Um, and Star Trek is really good at doing both. <laughs> I can't um, wait to hear it. Uh, great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming Thank in. Thank you. Fiona Davidson is an associate professor of geosciences at the University of Arkansas. Next fall, she'll lead the U of A Honors College Signature Seminar the geography of Star Trek, and she'll deliver a public preview lecture Thursday evening at 5.15 in Gearhart Hall on the University of Arkansas campus. That lecture is free, but the Honors College asks you to register in advance, and we have a link to that registration at ozarksatlarge.com. From science fiction to science fact now, this morning NASA sent PACE into orbit. PACE stands for Plankton Aerosol Cloud Ocean Ecosystem. The satellite will take measurements of ocean color and tiny atmospheric particles to monitor a changing Earth. Yesterday, Tom Newman, Deputy Director of NASA Goddard's Earth Science Division, told me why it's important to know more about ocean color. Ocean color gives us a good measure of the health of the ocean and the concentration of things like phytoplankton or small microscopic organisms living in the water. Um, you might have heard of things like harmful algal blooms, uh, which are when we, we get a large concentration of, of algae that's harmful for people or for animals that close beaches and that sort of thing. PACE data will allow us to measure and track those kind of communities in the ocean uh, and hopefully better predict how, where, when, uh, and keep track of the health of our global ocean. Also going to be keeping track of our atmosphere too, right? That's right. The A in PACE stands for aerosol. So this data, you know, from the vantage point of space, you're looking down at the Earth, uh, and these data then will also give us data about the aerosol loading in the atmosphere. And that's due to things like wildfires or dust or human activity or sea salt. Uh, and sometimes when you know aerosol loading is, is too high, that can really impact local air quality for, for all of us. How small of a particle in the atmosphere can can PACE trace and, and monitor? Yeah, <laughs> PACE can measure very small particles. And I realize that's not a very scientific kind of number, but uh, just a few microns. So one micron is a thousandth of a millimeter across. So just a couple of microns. One of the metrics you hear in air quality reporting is PM 2.5. And those are little particles that are two and a half microns in diameter. What can we do with this information? I mean, is, is this the sort of information that can help us in the very short term as well as the longer term? Yeah, PACE data will have a number of different uses. We touched on uh, ocean health and phytoplankton concentrations. We touched on aerosols uh, and their interactions with the, with the atmosphere and with the land and with surrounding water. Um, but PACE is really also a mission of discovery. Anytime we look at the Earth with a new tool or a new lens, uh, we learn things we didn't know to ask in the beginning. So while PACE will deliver on its science requirements and what we know it'll be able to do, combining PACE data with other data products will allow us to look at the Earth 
as a system of systems. What kind of tools? What what's in Pace? I mean, what can do this to to monitor such small particles? Yeah, so Pace is a collection of tools. There are three of them. The primary one is the Ocean Color Instrument, which is basically a really really fancy camera. And that camera, instead of just taking data at you know red, blue, green like you might see on uh, on your software editing. Uh, this will have 128 different channels, different wavelengths, uh, to look at many different gradations of of blue or green or red uh, that'll allow scientists to tease out what specific communities of phytoplankton are we looking at or uh, what specific uh, kinds of aerosols are we tracking. Tom Newman is Deputy Director of NASA Goddard's Earth Science Division and spoke with me about the PACE satellite via Zoom yesterday from the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. This is Ozarks at Large. Public radio was created to fill the gaps left by other media. That means hosts like me get to sound like ourselves. Hear the news from Real Voices on Morning Edition from NPR News. Morning Edition tomorrow and every weekday morning from 5 until 9. Huddy Ledbetter better known as Lead Belly, died nearly 75 years ago. But the blues and folk singer's legacy continues with a through line to contemporary music and social awareness. This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas concentrates on Lead Belly. Host Randy Wilburn talks with Alvin Singh, great nephew of Lead Belly and Northwest Arkansas resident. In this excerpt from the conversation, Alvin discusses the legend's legacy. The image that I get of him is John Henry. Yeah. You know, the guy who built the railroad, yes. that, that big folk. Sure. Hero. And so, and actually, Liberty has a song called John Henry. Okay. And so that's the image. Somebody who short stature is what Pete Seeger said and very, you know, he, he spent time in a chain gang. So he's originally from Shreveport, Louisiana, but he grew up playing guitar in Dallas, Texas and Texacana area with Blind Lemon Jefferson, who's, you know, another legend himself. And I love, I don't know about, I gotta yeah, stop for a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the names. <laughs> no. The names more than anything else. Blind Lemon. I mean, it's like, I mean, who, who thinks of that? Nobody, I mean, you know, well, and I'm sure there's a story behind every it, name. I was going to say, well, the, speaking of Arkansas, Jeff Place at Smithsonian, I asked that. I said, well, what do you think of the names? He said, there's a guy named Ironhead that did the first recording of Rock Island Line. Okay, And he was another prisoner. And I was like, ah, okay. So these were kind of like, you know, like today rappers names, you know, sure, like, sure. you know, so you got Ironhead and you got Lead Belly and Blind Lemon and all like, of these. Like, guys. like if you think of like Raekwon and Ghostface Killer right, right. And, and Method Man and right. all that. Yeah. So, okay. So that was that. And so his real name, Hughie Ledbetter. So it probably rhymed with that, Lead Belly. He spent a lot of time playing in, like you said, juke joints, you know, bar taverns, everywhere he could play, in the deep elms in, in actual Dallas. And he actually spent, and we can go more into this later, but he actually spent two prison terms that he infamously or famously were, he sung his way out of prison. Yeah. Uh, then he lived in New York City, befriended people like Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson, Josh White, Sonny Terry, uh, list goes on and on, even was befriending the guy who was the director of Rebel Without a Cause. Okay. 10 okay. years before the movie came out. Right, right. Uh, Nicholas, his name Nicholas Ray. Okay. Uh, so these were really good friends of him, Harry Belafonte. And this goes on. And then he passed away in 1949 from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh, wow. Which at that time was still, Lou Gehrig was the only other person. 
Iron Man himself, sure, you know, Iron Man sure. of baseball. Right. And so that's, and then, so that was in 49. And after that, it's been actually more history and stuff from his passing to today. Really? Know, and his influence. So, man. Yeah. And so I think, you know, and here's the thing, and folks that are listening to this, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. I'm going to link to as much as I can in the show notes based on this conversation. But there, you just recently were at an event at the Apollo, the yeah. world famous Apollo Theater, yeah. where you got to sit down with Kai Wright, who is the host of what's the name of the notes program? from America, notes from America mm-hmm. on WNYC which is at WNYC has some of the longest running radio programs, period, on radio. And you he interviewed you live in front of a studio, in front of an audience of people at the Apollo Theater to talk about Lead Belly and to talk about, you know, the fact that he had come up with the expression, stay woke, I think is what he said. Yep. But it wasn't necessarily used in the same way that it's been used today, although it has been, it has actually been co-opted and utilize this way. And a lot of times we hear things and we think, oh, that's fresh. That's new. And, and a lot of times it's not new. It's, not, mm-hmm. it's been around for a long yeah, time. You yeah. know, I was talking with a good friend of yours as, as before you walked in and we were talking about how the influence of music carries on from one generation to another and how you can hear the influence of Lead Belly's music in Johnny Cash's music. Right. And then you hear the influence of Johnny Cash's music in somebody else's music that is current. Right. And all of that dates back to Lead Belly and others that played during those early years. And so, and especially when you hear the lyrics of some of the stuff that Lead Belly created, you're like, man, he was way ahead of his time. Yep. And at the same time, he was just dealing with life as a black man in Jim Crow in the Jim Crow South. Yep. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, at, at the same time, at the same right. time. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's really interesting. So. Yeah. No, uh, musically. So on that point, He's, he played the 12-string guitar. Mm-hmm. So he called himself the king of the 12-string guitar. That is to separate himself. He was, you know, was also a big part of marketing himself. And even today, it's hard. I, I meet guitarists all the time. I say, you know, do you play the 12-string? No. You know, so very few people play it. It's very loud. It's a lot more strings. Mm-hmm. Well, 12. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so... That's his the musical background. Now the, the the event that you were talking about was a Martin Luther King celebration and the theme was Martin Luther King woke. Mm-hmm. And I started it off by giving the origins of the first time we heard the word woke. Right. Which on recorded um, song that he did on Scottsboro Boys. Right. Which is Scottsboro, Arkansas. Sure. I which I still haven't understood that part because the train left from Chattanooga, but the fight took place in Alabama. Yeah. But the court trial was called the Scarsboro Boys. And then Liberty says when you go down to Alabama. So that, I think that's because the train stopped there maybe. But right. needless to say, in that song, at the very end, he explains as a warning, you know, if you go down south, stay woke. Right. Basically, keep your head on the swivel. In 1962, the next time we saw the word woke was a New York Times op-ed from William, his name is... Crossing my name, but it's William Kelly. Okay. K-E-L-L-E-Y. And he mentions just on a headline about staying woke. After that, you know, it's used in protests and just in vernacular. But Erica Badu has a song called Master Teacher where she says stay woke. So that's, and then today, you know, it's, it's just a common term that we always see. What I recognize from that is there's woke 
And then there's wokeness. Mm-hmm. So wokeness is more of a pejorative. Is it more like a yeah. negative, right? You know, yeah. it's more, oh, you're a tree hugger. Sure. You know, yeah, if yeah, I, yeah, if I, yeah. you know, many of my friends come to my house and they see my recycle just piled up <laughs> and I say, yeah, I'm about to, you know, take it to the recycle. Oh, you're a tree hugger. And it's, it's a joke or is, you know, are they trying to, you know, make fun of make me? Fun They're of not me, really yeah. kind of, you know, congratulating me. No, so yeah. wokeness, uh, as we hear a lot of political, you know, pundits and people say that cancel culture and wokeness. Right. And they just kind of mention it as something negative. What I think. In, in, in the reference to Dr. King and anybody really woke is more being aware. Right. In Lead Belly's case, yes, he was talking about racial injustices, but I think that the term can still expand to many different things. You know, women's rights, uh, climate change, sure. workers' rights, digital privacy rights. You know, that's a real big thing today. You can hear the entire episode of this week's I Am Northwest Arkansas with Alvin Singh by subscribing to Randy Wilburn's podcast at any podcast platform or by visiting imnorthwestarkansas.com or by going to kuaf.com. We share excerpts from the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast every Tuesday on Ozarks at Large. Go ahead and beat it out. Alabama, and you better watch out. The landlords get you gonna jump and shout. Got boys, got boys, they tell you what it's all about. Call them landlords if they get you, boy, they gonna hang you. Go to Alabama, and you better watch out. The landlords get you gonna jump and shout. Got boys, got boys, tell you what it's all about. I'm gonna talk to your lord. And send to the danger me. Don't you know what's to make nobody? Alabama. This is Ozarks at Large. It is time to check in with our militant grammarian, Catherine Childs. Welcome back. Thanks, Kyle. You know, I know that you and I are both dog lovers, Mm -hmm. along with millions of other people. And perhaps because pups are so loved, we tend to use them in idioms that express undogly actions and thoughts. We sure do. In fact, we use so many that my research turned up enough to make two of our discussions about them. All right. So we'll start today. All right. Kyle, I don't know whether you suffer from this compulsive trait, but if you ever get so fixated on a topic that Laura has to steer you away, mm. what dog idiom might she use to describe your obsessiveness? Like a dog with a bone. That's right. And I currently own a dog that if she has a bone. <laughs> don't get it. No, don't, don't get, get between her and the bone. No. <laughs> the meaning is obvious, and the phrase was first found in literature in 1810. I'm assuming our recent weather has not made a happy person of you, Kyle. It has not. I do not like winter. I do not like ice. I do not like snow. (laughs) Well, hang on for a few weeks. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) So what dog idiom describes the time of year that you enjoy most? The dog days. That's right. Yes. An expression that refers to a period of hot, sultry weather in which we feel lazy and are unwilling or unable to exert ourselves. Occasionally, it's also referred to as a dog day afternoon. Oh, and which I never, I never put the two together because I, I guess the other one is so stuck with the, the movie, right? Right, know? the Al Pacino movie. Yeah, yeah. the old farmer's almanac, an almanac. The old farmer's almanac says the dog days are the forty days beginning on July third and ending on August eleventh. It has to do with Sirius, right? The the star. I, yeah, I think it does yeah. actually. 
Uh, here we go. Historically, dog days refer to Sirius, the dog star, and its position in the heavens. It's said that the Greeks and Romans observed that the hottest time of the year in late July occurred during the period when Sirius appeared to rise at the same time as the sun. In antiquity, the dog days were a time of ill omen. Not for me. <laughs> I love them. I don't know how many dogs you've ever had at one time, Kyle. How many? Two. Never more than two. <laughs> I, I want no more pets than I have hands to pet with. <laughs> that is the deal. We understand the kind of dogs that you get. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> or like train. A, they, they like affection, yes. <laughs> well, <clears throat> with your feelings about cold weather, I bet you've used this dog idiom to describe a really frosty evening. Makes me think of a band from the 1970s uh-huh. as well, Three Dog Night. All right. It's used to say that it's so cold that we need an extra dog for cuddling and warmth. It's believed that the phrase originated with the Australian Aborigines. When it was a cold night, they would cuddle with a dog in their bed to keep warm. If it was a bone-chilling cold, it might take three dogs to keep warm. All right. Kyle, there's a meme on Facebook that always makes me chuckle because it's so true. Quote, they should make an alarm clock that sounds like a dog ready to vomit. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing makes me jump out of bed faster. Is that true for you? Do you do you wake up when you hear things like well, that? Well, you know what? I'm I'm fortunate. My dog. They don't do it. She's. Uh, I relate that to when I had a cat. Oh yes, and sure. the cat. Yes, always vomiting. Yeah, yes, because <laughs> they. Yeah, but no, my them. my dog history has been they've got pretty good stomachs. Oh, well, good. Well, dogs do get sick, despite your experience. (laughs) In fact, there's a dog idiom that we used to describe ourselves sometimes. Okay, I wanted this one explained to me for a long, long time. Sick as a dog. Yeah. The origin of the phrase sick as a dog can be found in the early 1700s when it was common to compare undesirable things to dogs. (sighs) So it really doesn't have anything to do with the dog. Diseases such as the plague were often spread by animals like rats, birds, and unfortunately dogs. Mm. Mm. Other variants of the phrase are sick as a horse, (laughs) even as sick as a parrot. Okay, I've never heard anything (laughs) with um, a parrot one way or the other. I always thought it was like fit as a horse. I always thought... I've never heard that. I might have just made that up. I don't know. (laughs) I don't think of horses as sick either. I, I, I'm, you know, I love horses, but I've yeah. never been around them very much. Sometimes when we're sick, it's our own doing. Mm-hmm. Let's say you reveled a bit too much last <laughs> night. A popular idiom suggests a cure for a hangover. What is it? Hair of the dog. Yes. This peculiar expression refers to a remedy that contains a small amount of whatever caused the illness, such as a drink of liquor to relieve a hangover. The phrase, dating to the 1540s, Reflects an yeah reflects an ancient practice of putting a piece of dog's hair, uh-huh. sometimes cooked into an ointment, over a dog bite wound to help prevent infection. And I'm sure it did a really good I'm, job. <laughs> then he became sick as a dog right. with the plague. Yes, exactly. Kyle, here's the dog idiom that at one time meant exactly the opposite of what we use it for today. Mm-hmm. What do you think it means to lead a dog's life? Now, I would think, well, I've got a couple of different couches I can sleep on. Mm -hmm. There might be a fire in the fireplace. Mm -hmm. I might be handed a treat later, Mm -hmm. and I bet I get undivided attention at night. So I think leading a dog's life sounds pretty good. Mm -hmm. But then, as I often remind my dog, 
Daisy, you're a dog. <laughs> you're the 1% of dogs. There are a lot of dogs out there who don't have it like that, and they've got to scrounge for oh, food. True. And so true, true. maybe the meaning used to be and, tough. And you've picked up exactly how the the phrase has changed. Um, it, the meaning is the person has had or is having a very miserable time. Mm-hmm. In the 16th century, when the phrase first was recorded, dogs were kept as watchdogs or hunting animals, fed food scraps, and not allowed in the house. Mm-hmm. Or does it mean having a wonderful life? There you go. Anyone who has a dog can understand why it's a dog's life means being pampered, loved, and treated as a member of the family. If my dog could read, she would have (laughs) the ideal life. (laughs) She really would. Don't you read to her? (laughs) I talk to her. I don't read to her. (laughs) Well, maybe a dog's life isn't always wonderful, but there's an expression that means that everyone will inevitably have at least one moment of glory in their lifetime. Every dog has its day. That's it. This proverb was first recorded in the first century by Plutarch. I think that's how you pronounce that. Mm -hmm. As even a dog gets his revenge. Hmm. It later appeared in Hamlet along among a list of other uses by Dickens, Twain, and Kipling. Well, I'm dog tired. I'll (laughs) see you next time, Kyle. I understand that one. Uh, Catherine Sherald is our militant grammarian. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Jack Travis, Safina Narani, Randy Wilburn, and our militant grammarian, Catherine Charles. Yes, thanks, Catherine. A uh, reminder that you can find us online at ozarksatlarge.com. You can subscribe to our free podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. That's right. You can also, when you go to ozarksatlarge.com, you can find uh, some photos of the Hairstream Salon. Um, Really, really cool thing that's going on there. I remember Jack came to me a couple weeks ago. He's just like, here's this really weird idea for a story. What do you think? I was like, let's do it. So... You know what I think about? I love weird ideas for stories. Absolutely. Unusual, I guess we would say. Yeah, yeah. Out of the ordinary. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Tomorrow on our show, you have a story, right? I do. Speaking of weird things, uh, back in 1984, instead of doing a primary in Arkansas, they also did a caucus in the Democratic Presidential Caucus. Uh, and spoiler alert, the reason you didn't hear about it or haven't heard about it since 1984 is because it didn't go very well. You're so, talking to Skip Rutherford about that. Talk to Skip Rutherford, talk to John Davis, executive director of the Power Center. Really fun, interesting, weird story. That's tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Adult Night at the Scott Family Amazium is right around the corner. The Amazium invites guests to enjoy a kid-free, 21-years-old-and-up event Thursday, February 8th from 6 to 8 o'clock. Guests will get to tinker, create, and learn. Information and tickets at amazium.org. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families Annual Soup Sunday is February 18th at the Rogers Convention Center, taking place from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. This family-friendly event includes soup samplings, breads, and desserts donated by over 30 local restaurants and vendors. 479-927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets.